Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with the top story. According to a person briefed on trade talks, U.S. and Chinese negotiators are working on multiple memorandums of understanding that would form the basis of a final trade deal covering areas including agriculture, non-tariff barriers, services, technology transfer and intellectual property as well. Joining us on the phone to discuss is Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist. So, Carl, walk me through where you think we can make a breakthrough and what the sticking points might be as well. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Jonathan. Well, you know, these trade talks right now, the idea is to postpone uh, or to avert an increase in tariff rates. And I think that we will get that, but not necessarily because we get a deal, but simply because we're moving closer to a deal. On the Chinese side, we have the National People's Congress on March 5th. And beginning in the next few days, all of China's leaders are going to be focused on preparing for that Congress. So we'll probably get something in the form of a memorandum or an outline of an agreement or something that's sufficient to postpone the increase of tariffs that might happen on March 1st in the absence of progress. But I don't think we're going to get final deals anytime in the foreseeable future. Carl, the question I hear asked again and again increasingly over the last week or so is who is next? Europe? Is Europe next? Is that the next target for negotiations between the United States and, and trade partners? Well, we're watching what the what the administration has to say about cars, and uh, cars seem to be the next bone of contention. It's a particularly delicate topic uh, with respect to Europe. We have all of the uh, main European, uh, let me say that, probably German uh, automakers, uh, very heavily invested in the United States, moving parts and bits and kits into it and out of it. Uh, we'll see uh, what the declaration is about whether uh, these enterprises are a threat to national security. If they are, the Europeans have promised to respond quite vigorously to any U.S. trade action. So that could very well be the next front. Carl Weinberg with us with High Frequency uh, Economics, and we're thrilled he's with us because he, before pretty much anyone else, actually wrote a China note. I remember that, Carl, when High Frequency Economics came out with a China-focused note. You've looked at their behavior for years. What is their incentive to do anything but wait out 2020 in the election? Well, I think, Tom, you hit uh, the nail on the head. I think that the Chinese view of trade relations or the Chinese view of relations with the United States is extremely long-term. President Xi will be president of China long after President Trump is president of the United States. And I think they view the current administration as overtly hostile. I don't think we have to think very hard to understand why that's the case. And I think that they are hoping that the next administration will be a little bit less hostile toward them. So they'll drag their heels, but they also, under no circumstances, will give up their long-term industrial development plan, the contentious Made in China 2025. And their business practices are their business practices. And even though they may be modified slightly to deal with intellectual property or to deal with um, 
uh, transfer of technology, uh, they're not going to make big changes in those simply at the request of a foreign government. Would it be a mistake to believe that whoever the next president is, whenever the next president comes along, that there will be a change of approach towards China, Carl? Because what I see in Washington, D.C. right now is a bipartisan approach to the problems in the world's second largest economy. Well, uh, you see it bipartisan within the United States, but what you don't see is a multinational approach. I think that uh, there are, um, I won't choose right or wrong in this conversation, but I'll say there are disagreements about how economic policy and business conditions should be conducted uh, between the United States and China, and some of them may be legitimate, but to the extent that the United States wants to improve those conditions, History shows that a better course of action is to move in unison with our economic allies rather than to go it alone. And right now, this administration is very much an isolationist administration. I'm hoping that this was a diversion from the the recent historical trend of the United States to be more global. What does it do to your calculations of GDP? I mean, the basic idea, Carl, is you do a lot of international relations, international economics, but you and Jim O'Sullivan whittle it down to... What is the economy going to do? How does all this talk fold into your call on the American economy? Yeah, well, for the American economy right now, the impact on trade is marginal. There are clearly some sectors that are affected uh, profoundly by this. If you're a soybean farmer, you're very unhappy right now. If you're uh, in a technology industry that's dependent upon equipment coming from China that's now tariffed, you care about this. If you're in the steel sector, you care about this. But overall, we've got a very, very large U.S. economy, and the amount of goods and services that are affected by this trade war so far are not significant. Having said that, China's imports from the United States plummeted in the fourth quarter of last year. So we're looking at a 30-something percent average drop in imports of China from the United States, according to their data, um, in the fourth quarter. And uh, that is, you know, it's a, it's visible, but it's not significant to the overall growth trajectory of the economy. Carl, just one final question from myself. The Chinese are looking to stabilize their, co- their economy. They have been doing this for much of the last 12 months. The easing measures don't seem to be stabilizing the economy, though. I'm wondering whether the transmission mechanism is blocked up somehow. Why is it blocked up? And is it going to hamper their effects, their ability to really stabilize the situation? Uh, You know, John, you and I have to sit down and look at the data, but it looks to me as if GDP has been growing around six and three quarter percent for the last four years, and industrial production has been around eight percent, seven, eight percent. And while the trend has been very, very gradually downward, right, the economy is running very stable, and their numbers are a lot more stable than ours. Now, some people will say that that's artificial. But the numbers that we look at tell us that while there may be a slow, gradual decline in the growth rate of China's economy, right, quarter to quarter, there's not much of the world decline in trade or in economic growth that you can blame on an incremental slowdown in China. Growth there is slower than they want to see, but absolutely still doing three times faster growth than we are. So, Carl, what is the manufacturing PMI doing sub-50? Well, you know, John, you and I also have disagreed about the PMI. I think the PMI is an interesting statistic, but it's the industrial production number that tells you the story. The PMI wants you to believe when it's below 50 that industrial production has declined year over year. And quite frankly, if you look at the data, you're hard-pressed to find any declines in China's GDP ever. So in my view, using a PMI in an emerging market economy is an analytical mistake. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. High Frequency Economics.
Uh, right now, John Farrow and I are trying to figure out with the editor-in-chief how to fix the microphone stand. <laughs> it's, it's new for him. This is when you're, when I'm normally, you're, I'm normally have high, when you're a high, highfalutin You've got to guy. let it go. He can work it I out. I can't let it go. It's broken. <laughs> Why can't okay, you can you get go. the duct tape, the one the Rangers? He broke it? the Interactive <laughs> Broker get, Studios can again. Can you get the New York Rangers duct tape? We've thing. had this studio for a couple He's of months gone. and you've broken it already. I can't believe this is a vandalism. Poor Mike Bloomberg. This is because print gets a budget and we don't. Ken Spellinger to the rescue <laughs> as well. Joining us now, John Mickletwaite. What an who, introduction too. Well yes, done, Tom. Thank you. I, yeah. I, I like to do that. With a really important essay on the broader state of the Anglo-Saxon experiment. You hear me talk about this Anglo-Saxon economics and corporate theology and that. But John Mickletwaite, of course, so he can only do, takes it much, much further. The feeling at the end of your essay is we're at a critical point that clearly centers around Brexit, clearly centers around the, the U.S. election. What are the things you're watching which give you confidence that the Anglosphere, as you call it, can be maintained into the future? Just, just to give a little background first, the, the article makes the argument that, and, it, and it's a very big picture article, but it, yeah. makes, it, makes, it makes the argument that for the past... 30, 40 years, certainly since the 1980s, the, the mood music of the world was set by a combination of America and Britain. And obviously with America much bigger, um, Britain's economy is currently smaller than California's. But since the 1980s, mm -hmm. especially since Reagan and Thatcher, and then with Bush and Blair, Blair and Clinton, Cameron and Obama, all these different people, they basically spread a tune of globalization, liberalization, freedom, and around the rest of the world, most people, even if they didn't like pontificating Anglos, and you've never met one, um, no. they, 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 even people didn't like it, they generally accepted that that was the way the world was going to go. And obviously it had problems. You had the problems in Iraq. You had the problems with the credit crunch. But it really, in 2016, with Brexit and then with the Trump election, that, that alliance has come into trouble. And it's, it's going basically in the wrong direction. Brexit is chaos. And Trump is singing something which is exactly the opposite. He doesn't wander around the world talking about freedom. He doesn't do the things that you would expect an American president to do. And so this dominant message has stopped. And to some extent, it's been taken over by China. I think the Europeans hope that people like Macron would fill that void, but he doesn't seem to. And I think this does make a difference to the future of the world. So even if you don't like pontificating Englishman, and there may be many people even in the studio who, who reach that conclusion. <laughs> Taking the surveillance survey we're right actually, now. It's better to have us than not. What, do you think there's, there's better more to have one us in here right now? <laughs> I think you can't get into the glass dome of the interactive broker studio so John, it's a, it's a palace. Before I ask you what it's replaced with, I think we have to decide whether this is just a moment in time or whether it is an inflection point. What do you think it is? That, that is the debate. I mean, I fear that it's an inflection point because these things... Um, you have momentum. Victor Hugo has a very good line about nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. And that's how it felt in the 80s, 90s, and the first, century, first, first decade of the century. Now, if there's a certain point when momentum loses, other ideas begin to come in. You've already got the Chinese pushing the idea of the Beijing consensus. You don't really see Europe pushing anything particularly new. I, the, 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 main, the main argument for it being able to come back is a mixture between two things. One, politics can change. You know, Britain could just about muddle its way through to a slightly orderly Brexit, or perhaps even remain. And on the other hand, you could have um, Trump himself could get into trouble, and there, you know, there are other options. Europe can't get its act together, seemingly. Does China have the willingness, never mind the ability, to take a leadership role on the global stage? 
I think you can see, you see the sort of things which Xi did at um, Davos, um, um, Wang Shishan did again this year. You know, they, they are becoming slightly mo more overt in that way, or at least saying this is an alternative way of thinking about the world. And the point about when you deal in these big ideas is that it, the place where these things often really matter is the emerging world. And there, it's definitely true, you know, emerging world governments quite like what China says. You know, what's better than saying that in order to have a successful economy, you just need to be slightly more authoritarian. Governments, strangely, tend to quite like that. It, what I think, though, is that on the whole, there are still some, the Anglosphere has still got some big strengths. Most of the world's big companies, eight of the biggest ten okay. are American. You've got, and you've also got the basic fact that the people of the world, I think, do not necessarily think that more authoritarian okay, but things the, are a good John, idea. John, the discipline of all this, taking it back to Kissinger's diplomacy and a lot of the experience of the United Kingdom, is the cliche, what the world needs is a good war. We've had a huge time of peace within the Western world where we can get distracted into other ideas besides the discipline of institutions. And we've lost that. Well, you could argue that the biggest, another big thing that has happened this, uh, uh, over the past six or nine months is the the general fraction between especially between america and china and that that could also be an inflection point but i do think it doesn't it does tie back a bit to the idea that the dominant mood music the presumption of the world mm -hmm. i think for the past 40 years was that in general most countries even if they didn't like it thought the world was going to move slightly more towards the direction right. that America and Britain were singing. And I think it's very, this obviously being English, like the useless Mr. Farrow, we, 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 we tend to exaggerate our, our, our own importance, as you often point out. But in this particular case, I think it mattered that there wasn't just one country saying this, because yeah. it made the, made the message broader. Britain bought many things, it bought global media, it bought okay. uh, room, in the, room in the European Union, other things, and that made a difference. John McElthwaite, thank you so Great much. Great to catch up with you, John. Chief. John McElthwaite there, a must read today. Desperate guests to talk about desperate markets. And we do that now with Dennis Gartman, local pinata. Of course, Mr. Gartman has our respect, and then he publishes his trades in detail in the back of his acclaimed newsletter, Red Worldwide. Dennis, the only reason I wanted you on today is because <laughs> you lead with the fact there are more 65 year olds than the rest of the world combined. I mean, it's the United Nations, and it's a serious thing that we're an aging global population. And to bring this over to investment, Dennis, the percentage of us nowhere near able to retire, it's off the proverbial chart, isn't it? Oh, it's really quite sad. When you look at the amount of money that the average American has, I think it's somewhere in, in the neighborhood of less than $1,500 in his retirement account. It's, it's something uh, uh, really shockingly low. The ability for the average American consumer... Yeah. To meet even the, the slightest emergency need uh, in cash is, is shockingly low. So we've really done a very, very bad job individually trying to, to yeah. save for retirement. And this, it's only, I'm afraid, going to get worse. With the whipsaw, our 31% round-trip move early December, we've now peaked that uh, yeah. here in the middle of February. For long-term investors, what do you do now with cash for, quote, long-term, unquote? Do you go it, into the equity markets? It, it's still, it, nobody's going to like to hear what I have to say, but it's still a bull market, isn't it? It's still moving from the lower left to the upper right. The, the violence of the downward swing in, in uh, September, October, November until December 26th last year 
was awe-inspiring. The rally that we've had since December 26th has also been awe-inspiring. Yeah. The answer to your question is, what do you do now? If you have not done anything, you have to put something into the equities market. If you've done something, you probably want to sit and wait. After, after the rally that we've had since December 26th, right. you probably don't want to buy today's rally. You probably want to wait for a couple of weeks or so. But if your outlook is for the next 10 years, yeah. you have to be a buyer. There's no question. If, you're, if your outlook is for the next six weeks, you probably want to stand on the sidelines. We protect the copyright of our research uh, uh, guests. And, of course, we do that with Dennis Garbin, who writes us every morning at 2 a.m. with Ink and Quill. In the back, Dennis, there's no mention of equities. On the short-term, yeah. Gartman trades, all the criticism and, and acclaim that you get, you don't have anything on equities. Why? Uh, for, for Actually, I, I like to stay clear of the SEC they get upset with me sometimes when I write about specific equities, so I don't put them into no, but that's, come on, Dow, There's nothing here about Dennis Gartman in the stock market. Why is that? Well, actually, if you read the newsletter and if you read the section on the equities market, I explain that I am long of, of a local bank here. I am long of FCX. I am long of, of gold and silver equities. So I am yeah. actually long, and, and, but I haven't put it out as, as, an orig, as an official recommendation, as I like to call it. Uh, nonetheless, if you read the newsletter, you'll find out that I've yeah. been, I have been and, and continue to be rather long of the, of the stock market in various, in various manners. Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs uh, boldly three months ago climbed on the Gartman gold bandwagon. Goldman yeah. Sachs, I believe, working in dollars. Review with us the idea you, you do this in euros and yen. And am I yeah. right, Dennis, that within all the tribulations, this has actually worked out? Oh, it's worked out dramatically. So if you take a look at, if you go back to November, just abjectly pick a day in November, gold's up dramatically from that period of time. And if you look at that same period of time, the euro has gone essentially sideways or even slightly down. So if you have funded a position in gold using euros, you're, you've actually increased the amount of re return that you've gotten from gold marginally, but you have increased, yeah. uh, or shall I say, you've <clears throat> actually decreased the volatility on a daily basis materially. And isn't that the essence of great trading to get the same return with a decrease in volatility? And that's exactly what's happened there. This is why we love to have Dennis Gartman now. We get in a research report in from someone acclaimed and Gartman can give us immediate analysis. The wonderful George Cervellos at Deutsche Bank is always interesting reading. And he comes out moments ago, Dennis Gartman, and reaffirms Euro and says this is a Fed that will blink and the interest rate difference between the United States and Europe will narrow. Do you agree? I think the, the spread between the United States and Europe will continue to widen. Our economy is stronger than is theirs. Ten-year yields in Europe, are, are in, in Germany, for example, are still negative. Ten-year yeah. yields here in the United States are 2.63. That's probably going to continue to widen. It's been widening for years. Many people have called for it to narrow for years, and yeah. they, have been, they have been decidedly wrong for years. The trend is clearly <clears throat> for that interest rate spread to move in the United States' favor and for the United States dollar to Right, the beneficiary of that move. So, so can you go stable dollar or strong dollar? I think on balance, if you're if you're only looking at the U.S. dollar versus the euro, you're probably going to see the dollar get stronger. You're probably going to see the euro yeah. get weaker. If you're talking about the dollar versus Canada, <clears throat> Australia, or New right. Zealand, maybe that's a different story entirely. But if, if, most people, when they speak yeah. about the dollar. Speak about the dollar versus euro, and the dollar is likely to get stronger now. We Dennis, one final idea here. I just looked at the soybean chart, and we're off yeah. the bottom. I, I know that, and we kid Dennis about red wheat and winter wheat and all <laughs> the rest. Dennis, you are more than anyone we speak to are hardwired to the fields of the American Midwest. How yeah. tough is it out there right now 
for the people you know in the Midwest? It's very tough. It's been four years of, de- of steadily declining or, or stable, low prices. Bankers are very reticent this year to extend credit to, to farmers to put the crop in the ground. If there's one thing to be concerned about in the United States, it's, that, it, it's precisely that. Yeah. We are going to plant the smallest amount of wheat in 110 years, and it probably is even going to be smaller than the original USDA projections, simply because the banks will not extend credit. It, it yeah. really is tough out there, no question about it. Dennis, one final question. March 9, there's these two schools in North Carolina that, you know, they bounce off North, your North Carolina state. Does Duke have any chance March 9th against the dynamic crew from Chapel Hill? After what happened last night and, and, and the injury to, uh, to the best player in the country this year, Zion Williamson, no, Duke does not have a chance. I hate to say that. I dislike both teams. I'm an <laughs> NC State fan through and through. I was hoping that the game, as I told my wife last night, I hope this game goes to seven overtimes and it ends in a tie because I didn't want either team to win. But uh, yeah. without Williamson, Duke is, is really a demonstrably lesser team than they were. No question. Dennis Gartman, thank you so much for a wide-ranging discussion uh, this morning. We've had this big move in the market. The question is, is on many investors' mind is how much uh, is left. Uh, so to get uh, a professional opinion, let's bring in Lori Calvacina. Lori is the uh, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. So g- given this huge reversal that we've seen in the equity markets from December through to year-to-date 2019, what is your view of the equity markets? Is there any room left here? So I think there's a little bit of room. I don't think there's a ton of room. Um, you know, we've came into the year, our price target on the S&P is 2,900. We think the PE on a trailing basis can expand to about 17 times. That's not heroic. I mean, that gives you about 5 6% upside from here. I think, you know, it, it's going to be a bit slower as the year progresses than what we saw in January. I think it'll be more of a grind. We might take a few steps back before we go forward, but I do think there is room. Um, you know, I, I would say the story in the market is probably not that exciting right now, but when we look at positions when we look at valuations, things look fine. Um, some of the problems we have la- had last year have gone away. And earnings, you know, I-, I know we probably have the potential for some further downward revisions, um, but we do think the market can rally through that. We think a lot of that was already discounted at the December 24th lows. Was there anything in the Fed minutes yesterday that caused you to maybe change your opinion? No, and, and you know, actually, what, what I like about what I've been hearing from the Fed recently, and remember, I'm not an economist. I'm an equity market person, so I'm not going to get into the debate about whether or not the Fed should be listening oh, to the Oh, no, please market. do. But <laughs> I've been hearing a lot about that debate, and I, I can tell you as an equity person, I think that monetary policy was one of the top concerns that investors had coming into the year. So equity investors hearing that the yeah. Fed is listening to their concerns, I think actually permits those multiples to expand and removes one of the, the big problems on the sentiment side that we Lori, have. Lori, you have a deck that is absolutely brilliant, the RBC Hedge Fund Handbook. And let's forget some definitions here. What's a, what's a hedge fund hot dog? <laughs> so the, the hedge fund hot dogs are what we call the most crowded stocks and hedge funds. And the way we define it is we look at the S&P 500 stocks and we look at the total total dollar value um, that's owned by hedge funds. And so a lot of the names that you see at the top of the list, yeah. um, you know, frankly, the top five or so, I think it wouldn't surprise anybody. Um, you, get, you get some more surprises when you work your okay. name. Okay, 
farther down but, on the list, like IT services. Okay, but to, to cut to the chase of our sophisticated yeah. audience, aren't these guys just momentum trades? I mean, isn't the hot dogs just, it's going up, let's climb on board? You know, to some extent, but if you actually, you know, I think that's what people may think, but if you actually look at the performance of these stocks last year, yeah. they had a great first half relative to the S&P, but they pretty much underperformed throughout the second half of the year. They bottomed, you know, sort of midway through November and then started to rally again. But sort of the underperformance of hedge funds' favorite stocks, which are frankly, uh, you know, large cap growth investors on the mutual fund side also invest pretty heavily in a lot of those names. That was really one of the massive headwinds and challenges that we saw in the second half of 2018. So, you know, Lori, I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal here and the year to date, the Russell 2000 is up 17% versus the S&P up 11%. What is your view year to date? What is your view on kind of small caps versus the Brilliant. larger? Brilliant. Yeah, so, you know, we've been neutral, and the way we came into the years, we said, look, it's too late to go underweight, and we look at it, you know, we have these drivers of market performance that we track, and frankly, when we look at those, they're pretty split between small and large, but the one that still argues in favor of small cap is valuation. Now, we've seen multiples rebound a little bit in both small and large, but when we compare the two, small caps still look cheap relative to large caps on a forward PE basis, and in fact, the gap that we see on that valuation is similar to what we saw in the middle of 2016, right before you had the big Trump rally in small caps. Yeah. So we think you don't want to, you know, we, we've said if the right catalyst comes along, small caps should do well. Yeah. I think that catalyst we've seen is just uh, the underlying strength of the domestic economy. We've really not seen a big breakdown. Now, there are some problems on small caps. So earnings quality is lower. Um, you have an increase in variable rate debt which a lot of investors are wary of recently. So, I, you know, I think the risks kind of counterbalance the rewards, but I think bottom line is you don't want to be underweight here. Very cool. Lori Calvacino, thank you so much with RBC Capital Markets. We'll do this again soon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.